Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 266 of x Lapsed, and, uh, well, we got us a biggie today. We got us uh, one of the, uh, one of the bigger stories we're probably going to be discussing, at least for, uh, for this era. So big that it's actually late in the evening where I'm recording this, because, um, while I wrote the, uh, script and the notes about, about 12 hours ago... I kind of wanted to sit with this one before I committed my thoughts to, um, to you know, digital audio tape <laughs> or whatever it is that we do here. I wanted to um, let it settle and then come back to it and look at it a few more times. And uh, throughout the day, I've been I, I've been out and about, but I've been leaving little notes for myself to, uh, you know, just been reflecting on this story. I mean, this isn't to say it's... Uh, I mean, this ain't Shakespeare, right? This isn't something that's wildly huge, but it's important for basically everything we've talked about up to this point on this program. So I wanted to treat it with care. Now, is uh, is Inferno number one a perfect issue? No, despite what uh, I'm sure a good portion of the comic reviewing um, public <laughs> will say. No, it's not perfect. Uh, is it good? I can't say. I know I liked it. I liked it, uh, perhaps not for the same reason someone else might have, but um, yeah, I dug it. So, I mean, put the cart before the horse there, but I, I dug this issue. Am I going to miss this mystery when it's all over and, you know, all the cards are on the table? No, I don't think I'm going to. I think I'm kind of done with it. <laughs> I mean, I'm enjoying it, but I think I'm ready to move on. You know, I feel like it's time to graduate. So, uh, speaking of graduating, let's hop into... Today's discussion here. This is Inferno, Volume 2, Number 1. Had a November 2021 cover date, and uh, it's a Volume 2 because Volume 1 was the Inferno miniseries that took part as um, one of those little side stories in the even worse Secret Wars, the one in 2015. That was, uh, that was Inferno, Volume 1, and this here is Inferno, Volume 2. This story is, uh, well, untitled. It just says Inferno, so I guess we'll call it Inferno. Written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Valerio Shidi. Colors, David Curiel. Letters, VCs, Josephino. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Amaro, Biso, White, Sabolsky. Cover price, $6. It's a biggie. And this one went on sale September the 29th of 2021. Now we open with, uh, well, I mean, stop me if you've heard this one before, a mostly blank quote page. Uh, this one's from uh, Karima What's-Her-Face, the Omega Sentinel. And she's delivering a line of dialogue that we'll actually see her say a little bit later on in the issue. The story proper kicks off with... Huh. Hmm, where have we seen this before? This is quite the callback. Uh, well, to the opening pages of House of X, number one. But, um... Hmm, this one might just be spoiling a bit of the ending to Inferno. Let me hop back to my script for X-Lapsed Volume 1 with a few modifications here. We're gonna read straight from that, but, uh, plug in and play in, so... <clears throat> Emma Frost, wearing perhaps a Cerebro helmet, stood, stood before a pretty gross-looking tree. Toward the roots of this tree are some grosser pods. From them spring, I'm assuming, mutants. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to do this straight. Uh, we know who exactly who this is. It's Professor X and Magneto. Emma greets them and calls them her X-Men. And yeah, this is another damned to me, my X-Men riff. Info page. We got three of them. The first one is an introduction to Orcus. Not the most organic way or the most interesting way to deliver this bit of backstory, but uh, maybe I ought to just be happy that they made the effort to sort of kind of hold the hand of a potential looky-loo or new reader who uh, maybe they're just here for the big event. I don't know. Info page two is the Orcus map, and this one's a little bit less straightforward. And, um, you know, it makes the most sense if you already know what we know. Otherwise, it's just a list of places and some circles. Uh, you know, we know that Orcus has a Sentinel City, uh, various watchtowers, and of course, the Orcus Forge. And for info page the third, uh, you know, we're really getting the, uh, the info pages out of our system here, aren't we? Um, this is a listing of Orcus events vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, mutant incursions. Now, we see that attempts at attacking Orcus have been ongoing since the start, though we really haven't been privy to most of them. And it would appear that uh, this information is coming from Krakoa and not Orcus. So we basically have a list here. We have 13 attempts to basically take down the Orcus Forge. The first one is an X-Force mission where Domino escaped, and uh, the mission is considered a failure. 
the second one is also X-Force, and it mentions the Mystique Gateway, and also says that it's a, a failed mission. Now, the Mystique Gateway, I'm wondering if that has something to do with, uh, well, the gateway that Mystique put down there in X-Men number 5, maybe. Probably. Uh, the third attempt was by Magneto, wherein Magneto attempted to push the Forge into the sun and suffered an aneurysm in doing so. The fourth one's another X-Force one, and it's, uh, it's just an attack. Result unknown, though. So the mission, we don't know if it was a failure or not. Fifth one is another X-Force. Uh, there was bodies recovered. Failed mission. The sixth one, Magneto, he uh, now, you know, pushing the forge didn't work, so now he tried to pull the forge into the sun, and that also did not work. The seventh one is more X-Force, another attack, result unknown. The eighth one, X-Force, an Orcus hack, um, Kid Omega did some stuff, mission failure. Number nine, X-Force, the Mystique Gateway, the gateway was destroyed, mission failure, so, um... I'm guessing that this is, you know, X-Men 5, or Volume 5, Number 5, right? And I wonder, like, could the original Orcus Forge mission from Hoxpox been considered an X-Force mission? I don't know, maybe that was Mission Zero, and it's just not listed here. Incursions 10 through 13 are more X-Force attacks uh, with the results unknown. There are also some other incursion attempts listed here. The first one is from TechNet. We know TechNet, those are goofballs from Excalibur. Now, they were contracted via Avalon and Otherworld, and their mission was, I mean, by no surprise, it was a failure. Now, incursion number two is redacted. All we see is that it was a failed mission. So maybe we'll find out what that was. Uh, maybe we won't. The third and final one here is Brew and the Brood Swarm, and uh, unsurprisingly, that mission was a failure as well. We're finally back to comics, and we join X-Force at the Orcus Forge, and it's Domino, Wolverine, and Kid Omega, you know, the X-Force team we know. Uh, they run into Nimrod, and uh, long story short, they are slaughtered. <laughs> Nimrod uh, does the thing where it turns into two, and uh, it slaughters them. From here, we shift over to some of the bigwigs of Orcus, uh, Killian Devo and Dr. Uh, what is it, Alia Gregor, and uh, Gregor looks as though she's decided to let her hair grow out a little bit. Um... Now, they discuss the 16 attempts that the mutants and their associates have made in order to try and stop Nimrod from becoming a thing. Devo refers to Nimrod as Gregor's husband, which is technically true, right? But uh, really isn't how she'd like for him to be described. Now, we saw this whole thing play out in X-Men Volume 5, Number 20. Oh, and it's probably worth noting that this conversation is occurring in front of, like, a whole bunch of Wolverine skeletons. I wonder if there are X, or I, I mean 10 of them. <clears throat> now, here's the rub. Devo and Gregor discuss that with each subsequent attack from the mutants, it wouldn't appear as though the mutants have gotten any better at this. Which is to say, they're not evolving. They're not learning from their mistakes. And well, we know why that is. You know, resurrection protocols, cheese toasties and all that. Gregor questions why the mutants don't remember their failings, and uh, Omega Sentinel responds with that quote that opened the issue. Someone remembers, dot, 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 it's why they keep coming. Hmm. From here we go to our double-page spread of cred. Uh, no roll call this time, gang. Uh, just a big ol' mostly blank page instead, uh, with just the indicia on it, basically, and half the Inferno logo. This is a $6 book, right? $6. A lot of blank pages. Um, anyway, back to comics, and it's back to Mora's third life. Now, this is a scene we saw play out in House of X number 2, only with a bit more detail. Now, Mora was a geneticist who was uh, working on a cure for mutantdom. We join her as she's being toasted by her peers. And, uh, you know, toasted before roasted, like I always say, but uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Worth noting, Mora is toasting her peers. It's uh, four of them, so perhaps these were the original five. As in, you know, the five and not the original five like we talk about on The Essentials. Just, you, know, you know what I'm getting at. Anyway, it's here where the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants attacks. And the next several pages are an almost completely accurate recreation of the pages from House of X number two, though with some minor and major dialogue changes. Uh, I tell you what, I'll, I'll include a side-by-side -side of these pages at the blog or maybe at the Facebook group for anybody who's interested in seeing them who may not have uh, checked it out. Now, before we get into those changes, let's jump back to my notes from X-Lapsed Episode 3, wherein I said, Mora's lab is destroyed by Mystique, Destiny, and Pyro. 
Destiny used her precog powers to get a read on Mora, and told her in no uncertain terms that she ain't to be messing around in no curing no mutations. Destiny also reveals that while Mora has reincarnation powers, that really doesn't mean she's invincible. Destiny only sees ten, maybe eleven, lives for Mora. She also warns that if Mora, upon resurrection, would die before her mutant powers kick in at puberty, or thereabouts, it'd be lights out for good. Destiny then orders Pyro to burn Mora to death. A death she'd really like Mora to remember, and by the looks of it, she probably will. Now let's talk about some of the edits. Now, Mora's line about the Brotherhood killing all of her friends has been removed in the retelling. Mystique's order to listen closely has been removed. Destiny's line, do you have any idea how much they hate us, has been changed to, do you have any idea how much they hate you? There's an added bit to Destiny's dialogue wherein she says that her, Destiny's, own powers will have manifested in the next life before Mora's come to her own, you know, coming of age. Basically confirmation that, yeah, Mora's gonna die here. And next time around, Destiny's going to already know what's what. Now, after Destiny delivers the I see ten lives, Mora, maybe eleven, Mora's reply changes. Originally, it was, how is that possible? And now it's, how can I die? And there's also a page here added between the discussion and the ultimate death. It's Destiny telling Mora that, uh, well, basically she's got to make right, change her ways, and actually mean it. Because here's the thing, even if she does change her ways, she'll likely always have this little inkling of an idea to cure mutation in the back of her mind, which is a pretty interesting addition, is it not? Um, now, that's not something I'd ever considered. I mean, could Mora's plan all along be ending mutants, consciously or subconsciously? I mean, if we take a look at it, every step they've taken thus far has only ensured that Nimrod came online, right? Maybe even hastened it. Also, Destiny refers to her here as Dr. McTaggart, which begs the question, was Mora a McTaggart during Life 3? Is this an error? or a misdirection? Or is this added page a flash forward to a scene that we'll see play out later on in Inferno? Huh. Well, let's let's put a pin in that for now. Now the scene plays out the same way, Pyro slowly burning Mora to death. Now the first time around, Mora says, I don't want to die like this. This time she simply says, I don't want to die. Pretty interesting. And I tell you what, this works a lot better than the reused pages from X-Men 12 and 14. Uh, I mean, they actually took the time to redraw them, for one, and uh, we might have had some, some clues dropped in it as well. From here, we jump to the present, or at least Mora's tenth life, and uh, she's at the ruins of the old Muir Island facility, and she's found her Project Cure notebook. Now, uh, she's looking at the page with the names of her fellow scientists on it, to be uh, specific, and I'm trying to remember... When this actually happened during Mora's Life 10, was it the Dream's End arc before, uh, before Morrison popped in? I can't remember. Anyway, Mora used Krakoan Gateway E710 to get there, which is uh, now being reported to... somebody. Hmm. Now, before we move on, you know, you see Project Cure, and the juxtaposition between these two scenes makes you think that uh, this is the cure for mutations, you know? This is the cure that... That uh, Destiny said uh, Mora would always have kind of kicking around in the back of her head. And I'm wondering if this is a red herring here. Is this the mutant cure? Or, I mean, if we're taking it as purely a Mora's 10th life deal, could it be notes that she was working on to cure the legacy virus? I mean, that was basically her entire purpose at the time of her golem's death, right? Anyway, from here, a scene shift to Orcus, and this is Orcus Node 4 in Terra Verde. Now, we know about Terra Verde from X-Force, not that it really matters in the uh, grand scheme of things here. Uh, here, we see a pair of intelligent ape scientists trying to parse some data. And we did see some smart apes back in the opening scenes of X-Men Volume 5, Number 1. And here's where I ask you, what could possibly be more boring than Orcus? The answer is horticulture. But uh, what could be more boring than that? How about a horticulture and Orcus team-up? Because, folks, that's what we have here. Can you believe it? This is like the this is like the sleepy time cocktail here, isn't it? 
Now, the deal here is, uh, well, we know that the old bags have figured out a way to hack and manipulate the Krakoan gates, right? And so this is technology that they apparently sold to Orcus. Now, the apes are thinking that there might be something hinky about it when they get word of more than one reading coming from the same gateway. Well, it turns out it's uh, not the same gateway. It's just a gateway that's right on top of another one. Now, we might assume this has something to do with the no place, or at the very least, Mora's travels to and from it. Our scene shifts to Sage, who is being briefed by Tommy, a Morlock of very little importance. Uh, Tommy reports in that the Orcus crew in Paris have just gone hot. From here, we jump over to the no place. Mora returns back home, I guess we can call it, and is greeted by Charles and Eric. Now, Xavier is flipping through a book that we might assume is one of Destiny's diaries. Uh, I think the last time we saw Mora, she was actually flipping through one of them herself. Xavier reports that they made yet another failed attempt at taking down the Orcus Forge, probably the one that we saw with uh, Wolverine, Quentin, and Domino being, you know, killed by the Nimrods. Our no-place trio kind of gets snippy toward one of another here. The entire scene is very, very snippy and passive-aggressive. Uh, Mora accuses them of never listening to her and, and also keeping her hidden away. And I thought Mora wanted to be hidden. Or at least this was like an agreed-upon measure. I didn't know she wanted to be out and about. Uh, Charles attempts to sympathize with Mora's plight, but she ain't buying none of it. She says that he has no idea what she's been through living for a thousand years. You also mentioned something about her uh, reminiscing in the past. And we'll, we'll put a pin in that for just a bit. Magneto then offers a pretty strange suggestion indeed. Uh, since nothing's worked so far over the course of Mora's previous nine lives, you know, mutants always lose. They're destined to fall short and lose. So how about this time, you know, things are supposed to be different this life, right? Why don't they try to make the machines their allies? That's certainly different, right? Can't beat them, join them, that sort of thing. Mora ain't digging that at all. Now, she says that there are only two things that she fears, and those two things are Nimrod and Destiny. It then registers with Mora that Xavier commented on her reminiscing, which is to say he knows that she was just at Muir Island. But how? Well, Forge created a techno-organic dealie that pings any time Mora passes through a gateway, and it's something she unknowingly ingested during the uh, tea scene in uh, Powers of X number 6. Mora is, as you might imagine, really, really, really ticked off at this. Xavier excuses their behavior, citing that Mora is the most important person in the world and must be protected as best they can. Which is to say, if Mora dies, of course, the timeline resets. Or, if this turns out to be her final life, Lord only knows what happens after she kicks it. As she kinda understands, or at the very least doesn't have a whole, you know, much of a passive-aggressive comeback for this statement. Mora then appeals for the fellas to listen to her, or at the very least not ignore her. And she lays out the current situation. Now, Nimrod's a thing, right? We can't deny that. That's a thing that exists. Now, she claims to measure the clock that they're up against in stopping Nimrod from ascending in years. You know, it's years they have. So they have a little bit of time here, relatively speaking. Now, this brings her to her other big fear. Destiny. Now, destiny is something that they can do something about right now. And she asks Xavier and Magneto to erase destiny now. Charles says that Mystique will not go for that. To which, Mora suggests that she be removed from her position of power at the Quiet Council. And I gotta ask here, I'm not sure why dumping the destiny backups would be something that Mystique or anybody on the Quiet Council would have any say over. But, uh, okay... <laughs> I guess. I mean, that just... It, this seems like an underhanded, unethical, anti-Krakoan thing to do to erase a mutant. I don't think that'd be something that would go up to vote for a vote, right? I don't know. Now, Mora says the council should discuss replacing some members and maybe sell it to them as a, quote, season of change. Now, she cites that there are currently two empty seats, the ones left by Apocalypse and Jean Grey. Though, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I could have... I could have sworn that storm left too. Did did was that like a like a Mandela effect? Did we all dream that that she was leaving? I I don't know. Anyway, from here we follow Magneto and Xavier as they go about enacting Mora's plan. Maybe, maybe. Um, all we see is Magneto going to Island M, where one of the Cerebro cradles is. 
though we don't see what he actually does once he's there. From here, we hop over to Xavier, who's chatting up Mr. Sinister to grab all the remaining Destiny DNA. Now, the little vials of her DNA, or whatever, are labeled as SN3 in Krakoan. And I'm not sure if we've ever noticed this before, but uh, there appear to be no Krakoan numerals. Because it's like the Krakoan letters for S and N, and then just the number three. Now, Sinister, sassy as he is, has a pretty uh, sinister smile on his face when he hands over the stuff. Huh, does he know something we don't? Could there be something afoot? Uh, perhaps it's worth noting here, um, in the Magneto bit, he's wearing a different color costume for this scene. He's in his blacks for most of the issue, though here, he's in his more, like, white-accented gear. Could this mean... Huh. Hmm. Okay, uh, Mora tells the fellas that she needs Destiny gone forever, completely burned from existence. And she does mention the Five, and how she needs for it to be impossible for them to you know, resurrect Destiny on their own. Now, that might mean that the powers that be know that the Five have kind of gone into business for themselves of late, you know, resurrecting without the okay of the Council. We saw it happen with Gabby over in New Mutants. Maybe we saw it with Wanda in the Trial of Magneto. So the Five might be, I suppose, an unreliable variable at this point. Um, from here, we go to an info page, and it's uh, something completely different. It's a medical report by Cecilia Reyes about Black Tom Cassidy. Eh, fair enough, maybe this will be important later on. Though, in fairness, it does mention uh, a feeling like there's machinery moving under his skin, and uh, that kind of facilitates our next scene shift to Rosetta, which is Doug Ramsey's home on Krakoa. He wakes up, kisses his wife, and heads outside. His wife, Bay, her eyes pop wide open after he leaves. Huh. Hmm. You know, distrust is a, is a big theme in this issue here. I'm starting to, like, question, like, everybody, which is cool. It, it is cool. Uh, anyway, Doug heads out. He meets up with Warlock and chats up Krakoa. Warlock expresses a bit of fear about Bay the Blood Moon, uh, claiming that she's a bit, you know, scary. Doug's all like, yeah, no doubt. She's terrifying, but I love her anyway. Now, the purpose of this scene isn't immediately apparent, Though, if we're seeing Warlock right after we get a scene of Xavier and Magneto trying to sell Mora on the idea of allying with the machines, it might be a little bit telling. Also, the info page with Black Tom feeling, you know, machinery under the skin, and we have Warlock kind of co-opting the, the natural uh, environment and landscape with techno-organic funk, I guess. Um, so it might mean something, or it might be a red herring. Now, before we move on, I'd like to pop back over to X-Men Volume 5, number 21. Uh, in particular, Sinister Secret, number 54. Quote, Seducer made an honest man of the island's favorite boy, but what unspoken secrets are coursing through the nervous system of the favorite boy's island friend? Are you listening? I know that you are. Hmm. Next stop, the Quiet Council. Cyclops, the captain's commander, has decided to step down from his post. He's going to remain a captain, just not the captain's commander or the commander captain. Bishop will take on that role. Also, Quinan will be replacing Gorgon in his position, and it's about time they address this, huh? Now, this sets things up for the season of change discussion to play out. And anyway, this scene kind of plays out like a legit ceremony. Uh, Bishop's giving like a crown of leaves. It's pretty weird, though in fairness, it's also completely on the fly. Uh, Krakoa has never had to do a changing of the guard, like, ceremony before. And they even talk about how they're kind of making it up as they go along here, which, you know, kind of works, I suppose. Now, there is something about a look that Bishop gives Storm that makes me bit, a bit uneasy. <laughs> it's so weird, like, like I mentioned it before. I'm beginning to distrust everybody I see. And I, I, I'm having fun. I mean, this is a really fun, really tense story. It's giving me the old, like, uncomfortable hoxpox feeling where it's like, I have, like, ideas what might happen, but it might go a completely different way, and I don't know which way I want it to go. It's, it's pretty cool here. Before we move on, Sinister Secret number 59. Quote, Promotions are hard to come by when everyone is a resurrected immortal, but sometimes a change has to be made when an unexpected variable is added to the equation. Heroes in their do-gooder ways, always an inconvenience for a practical mutant. Hmm. 
Now, after the crew of captains leave to go get some drinks at some lawless Madriporian bar, the Quiet Council have themselves a sit-down. Xavier begins to uh, nebulously introduce the idea of the season of change. Nightcrawler asks uh, exactly what they mean by this. He's like, are you trying to fill empty seats, or are you looking for volunteers willing to step down? Which is a really good point here, because Xavier really is kind of beating around the bush. A Magneto answers with basically the por que no los dos, you know, why not both? Mystique immediately pops in, saying that, you know what, a change would do everyone good. And Xavier is very relieved to hear this. Well, not so fast, Chuck. Mystique ain't thinking about stepping down. She actually has someone she'd like to nominate for one of the empty seats. And Xavier and Magneto were all like, not this again. They're, they're, they're exhausted. They're like, oh, Mac- Mystique, again? Come on. To which she says, yeah, this again. And then she introduces the Quiet Council to her nominee. And her nominee is, well, of course, it's Destiny. Now, as this is being revealed, we do get a reminder of Destiny's words to Raven back in X-Men number 5, wherein she was told if, if she's not allowed to bring her back, that she needs to burn the place to the ground. But, well, it looks like she was able to bring her back. So where exactly do we stand now? Hmm, also... Let's keep in mind that we don't actually see who's under Destiny's mask. Could this be Mystique pulling a fast one? <laughs> we got a lot of food for thought, but that is where we leave it. Next episode, we got an issue of Sword, but uh, boy, have we got some stuff to talk about here. And unfortunately, as I mentioned, I, I kind of uh, I kind of wrote these notes down like in spurts throughout the day here. Just anytime something came to mind, I just threw it into the the script here and was just so I wouldn't forget to mention it. So. I think uh, I'm going to be kind of all over the place <laughs> in this portion of the program, but uh, hopefully, hopefully I'll make sense. Uh, I can't, uh, I can't guarantee it, but hopefully uh, we'll be able to be on the same page here. Now I want to start with something very simple, relatively speaking. The info page that started us off here, one of the info pages, um, where we found out that. You know, Krakoa has made all these attempts at the Orcus Forge, and we saw that most of the incursion attempts have uh, resulted in failure. Like, uh, Krakoa, or whoever was monitoring Sage, perhaps, uh, was able to confirm that the missions were a failure. The other times, result unknown, right? That's what we hear, result unknown. And they were X-Force missions. So, the question I have here is... um, could there be multiple versions of our X-Force characters out there? Like, have the Five been resurrecting the members of X-Force without confirmation of their deaths? I mean, we don't know. Maybe they were taken captive. Well, what All we do know is that they didn't make it back. So that's, um... I don't know, it feels like uh, not so much playing fast and loose, because, I mean, X-Force is something that they need for uh, their protection, but... Perhaps a shortcut that's going to come back and uh, bite them. The addition to the uh, Mora death scene from Life 3, at least that's how it's being presented. Uh, Like I mentioned during the synopsis, maybe it's a nebulous flash forward and it's, you know, full of information that's going to make sense upon reread, right? Or it'll make more sense, I suppose. It'll just be apparent and obvious, I suppose. But that scene here, uh, we find out that... uh, uh, Destiny doesn't quite buy Mora going completely straight, or even if Mora does go completely straight and uh, doesn't try to end mutantum, she's always going to have that itch right in the back of her head here. With uh, uh, the, the cure is going to be there. She's going to know the cure, right? She hasn't forgotten it. That's kind of the whole gimmick with Mora's resurrectability. She remembers everything, and that actually is something we discussed back in uh, episode two hundred. When we took a look at the X of Swords handbook during the Mora portion, uh, it's, uh, it's a point we raised. It was like, she doesn't forget. So what does this mean? Uh, let's talk about the uh, the big three here, Mora, Xavier, and Magneto. Got some trust issues between them. So, like, who is zooming who here? Uh, Mora really, she only had two goals, right? Two goals. Uh, stop Nimrod, no destiny. And, uh, well, when she talks about that, only one of them had gone caca, but by the end of the issue, both have. At least, that's what we think. Now, let's talk about Xavier and Magneto erasing 
destiny. My question here is, were these even Xavier and Magneto in these scenes? Let's take a look at a sinister secret number 56. Quote, And speaking of things that come in twos, two empty seats on the Quiet Council are two too many. Look for there to be moves made in filling those of those empty seats, regardless of how many favors have to be called in or how many unwise alliances are formed. Just remember, when everyone has a secret, no one can be trusted. Now, I mentioned during the uh, sinister scene that he had quite the uh, quite the look on his face, like he knew something was going on here. And uh, the the order in which we saw the scenes of the the procurement of the tools required to erase destiny may have also been quite telling. I mean, we had Magneto in the wrong color outfit. Going to Island M, taking the uh, the Cerebro Cradle. And next we see is Xavier wearing the Cerebro Cradle and getting a odd knowing glance from Sinister. So uh, when everyone has a secret, <laughs> no one can be trusted. I wonder. I wonder. Hmm. Another question about the Destiny scene here, the Destiny D- DNA scene, I suppose. If Destiny has been a no-no from day one, why in the world have they kept her DNA this long? Or at all? Like, shouldn't that have been the thing they did on day one? More is like, okay, for this to work, destiny can never come back. And it's like, okay, well, let's let's dump it down the drain now. It makes absolutely no sense to me why they would keep the DNA this long. Or again, at all. Like, it should have just been gone from day one. Um, let's see, let's keep on the trust train here um, Xavier and Magneto making the suggestion that perhaps they try to ally with the machines To make this life different from the rest And uh, I'm reminded immediately, we did get a scene with Warlock here And Warlock is living out in the open But initially he was like the worst kept secret on Krakoa So I wonder if maybe this was an Xavier Magneto thing Early on, like maybe they know what Mora knows because she told them and decided to kind of go their own way from the start in seeing what a mutant machine alliance might uh, might do for the future. Definitely some interesting food for thought there. Um, throughout the synopsis, we talked a little bit about potential red herrings. And I'm wondering if perhaps the biggest red herring was the whole Mystique's burn it down thing. Now let's go with the um, assumption that in the back of Mora's head she still has that goal to cure the cancer that is mutation, right? And perhaps all of the steps that we've seen thus far have been uh, planned in a way to facilitate her doing so. Like, all we really have from Mora's ten lives, are, or her nine previous lives, are what Mora told us, Right? For all we know, she's full of crap. Maybe she had other goals for those first nine lives that uh, she hasn't been completely honest about. Maybe she's wanted to end mutation and end mutants wholesale. Maybe Destiny was right that Mora will always have this urge to end mutants. So I wonder, I mean, Destiny is the big no-no, right? Is that why she was a big no-no? Could it be that Destiny is Mutantum's savior? I mean, these are crazy questions, but I'm loving how we actually have these questions now. This is, um, this is a fun little uh, story study. And these theories are all kind of spinning out from that one scene that we saw at, with Mora at the remains of the Muir Island facility holding the Cure book. And again, that could be a red herring, right? That could be the cure to mutation. It could be the cure to the legacy virus. Or, or, let's say it was the cure to mutation. Maybe, maybe Mora is only hoping to cure herself of being a mutant in order to stop the timeline from rebooting when she dies. Could that be what it is? Food for thought, right? Very, very interesting. Let's go to the opening scene. The one that uh, kind of uh, mimics the first scene from House of X number one. We had Emma resurrecting Charles and Eric. Now, that tells me that we're coming out of this story with a new or altered hierarchy on Krakoa. Or, or if we look at the book we discussed last episode, maybe this scene wasn't a flash forward? I mean, I have a sneaking suspicion, and if I had to bet money on it, I would say that it was. But... 
maybe it's instead spinning out from the onslaught revelation. Which brings me to my next question. When is this story happening? Is this story happening after all of the current books end? Is, like, Inferno the bridging story from one era to the next? And if so, uh, that kind of, I don't know, takes a bit of the wind out of the sails for some of the other titles, right? We know here, if that is the case, that Quanon survives Hellions. And Magneto isn't thrown in the hole. Which... Makes me think, like, let's let's keep on the topic of other books in the line. And perhaps this is an oversimplification, but I got this question in the back of my head. It's itching the back of my head. What has been the point of any of them? Any of the non-Hickman written books? What was the point of them? I mean, nothing that's happened outside of his own work matters here. So why is this line so damn bloated? Besides, you know, the obvious reason, of course. It just feels, like, unsatisfying. You know, we read all these issues of Excalibur, all these issues of X-Force, and it's like, we read X-Corp, for Christ's sake. In reading this, which is like the bookend to the Hickman run, it makes me feel like, you know, if I wasn't a completionist and if I wasn't doing this show... I'd be like, why did I invest all that time, my brain space, and money into these side stories that really don't matter? And again, this is only the first issue. we got three more to go. Maybe maybe next issue will be all about uh, X-Factor doing something. Probably not. But I kind of worry, and I mean, this is probably a, a foolish worry to have, but I worry that this is going to become like a once-bitten-twice-shy thing for, uh, for more casual X-Men readers out there. I think a lot of people bought the entire line hoping to see breadcrumbs of the, you know, Hickman master plan be sprinkled throughout the uh, throughout every issue, right? Something there in every issue that kind of reminds us, you know, what the what the focus of the story is, what the end game for this story is going to be. And we really haven't gotten that. You know, I mean, that's not an indictment against this book. It's really not an indictment against any one creator. I mean, editorial does its thing, but It just feels like maybe some of the more casual fans might think twice about going all in next time around, right? And I mean, if we compare sales figures from the flagship books and the second, third, and fourth tier books, it's a pretty wide gap. So if we lose anybody who might just casually be interested on top of, you know, on top of everyone else, it's uh, perhaps a little troubling. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm speaking out of turn. We still have three issues to go, so um, these are just my hot takes, of course. You're free to disagree or agree, and, I mean, we're all still friends. It's all good. Uh, One more thing about the issue. Um, The art kind of, well, kind of, it really loosens up toward the end of the issue. I think I stared at a panel with Sebastian Shaw in it for, like, five minutes. Like, who in the hell is this guy? (laughs) He just didn't look like anybody. It uh, got kind of loose, and... That's unfortunate, considering that the final uh, scene in this issue was kind of the biggie, right? Though, again, in fairness, uh, this was a very big issue. Though, again, perhaps not in fairness, it's also an issue that's been in the works for many, many months now. How long have we known Inferno's coming? It feels like we've known Inferno's coming for, like, six months. I'm probably exaggerating, but it feels like a very, very long time. But, um... Anyway, I think that's all I have to say about this first issue of Inferno, and I uh, apologize for going on so long. I mean, I think we're we're like 40 minutes now, and uh, <laughs> I'm still talking about the damn issue, but I think this one is definitely worth checking out, and I'm very excited to be not so much on the ground floor of this one, because we are, yeah, I don't like to spoil things right away, you know that, and I also get my books a few weeks late. So I like being kind of on the ground floor here, where... We're all kind of on the same plane, and we're all kind of throwing theories back and forth. This is the thing that I was very envious of people who were, you know, reading Hoxpox as it was coming out, got to experience back in the summer of 2019, where theories were rampant, the conversation was hot, it was just a really fun time from what a, what it looks like in hindsight, And even though I wasn't there. Here with Inferno, I, I get to be here. I get to be here, I get to discuss it with all of you. Hopefully we'll have some really cool discussions and throw theories back and forth. Uh, whatever the case, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to more of this. Uh, this really brings me back to uh, the sense of anything can happen and the sense of just tentative dread 
that I had during during Hoxpox, where it's like, I can't wait to get to see what's next, but at the same time, I'm really scared of what might be next. So, really enjoyed this. You know, there were some warts there, of course, and nothing's perfect, despite what the internet might tell you. Uh, I think this was a really, really fun issue to analyze and explore, and hopefully it'll be a lot of fun for us to discuss in the uh, in the coming days and weeks. Now, before we get out of here, how about we dip into the mailbag here? we got a, a trio of letters to discuss here. We're going to start with one from Evan, uh, discussing Hellions number 13. Now, Evan says, With the knowledge that this series is not long for the shelves, this feels like the start of the final trade, wrapping up all those loose po- plot threads. Although one would think that it would be smooth sailing if they can survive the legions of creepy shy guys, a.k.a. the Locust Vile. I, I love that. <laughs> Legion of Creepy Shy Guys. Um, You've already read the outcome, of course, but the only way I can see this fight going any differently is if the Amenthi Resurrectees have something extra in the tank. Do the ones who made it back to Krakoa even remember the fight? Well, now we know that Evan wouldn't be allowed on Krakoa since he uh, appears to be a precog. Yes, (laughs) we have read it, and by now you've read it too. If you're listening to this episode, I would assume... So you'll know that uh, the Resurrectees have a little bit of a a tweak to them, and uh, you'll also know how the other Hellions, the ones that made it back to Earth in as far as uh, what they knew and what they now know. Evan continues, I hope Wells picks up some of these characters elsewhere, even if it means taking Nanny and Orphan Maker along to Amazing Spider-Man. I mean, it won't be enough to get me to buy three issues a month, but I will be looking forward to the trades, Marvel Unlimited, and the back issue bins. And I tell you, I'm a huge Zeb Wells fan. I've actually jumped both feet in on Amazing Spider-Man, despite the fact that it's it's an expensive book to follow. It's uh, three issues, four issues, five issues a month. Um, and Wells doesn't even write all of them. So, yeah, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. I figure it's probably about that time for me to give Spider-Man another go-around. I, t- I tend to do that like every five, six, or seven years. I will pop back into Spider-Man. Sometimes I'll collect along the way and just not read them. Other times, like now, I have not bought an issue of Spider-Man for, well, what is it, 75 issues? <laughs> so it's been a little while. But, I mean, it's Spider-Man. How hard can it be to uh, to find your way? Famous last words, right? I don't think there'll be a Spider-Lapsed program. We'll, 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 yeah, we'll put a pin in that. We'll put that in the bad idea column <laughs> for now anyway. But uh, thank you so much for writing in to discuss one of this show's favorite books. Next up, we have a short message from our friend Peter. I think it's Peter. I think it came through as unknown, and unknown is usually Peter nowadays. And this is about X-Men Unlimited number six. And he says, uh, Wolverine might have been taking it easy on the bear because he knew that the bear was being controlled or influenced. And what Peter's referring to is a nature girl controlling a mama bear in order to uh, occupy Wolverine long enough for nature girl to steal his motorcycle, his emissions-spewing motorcycle, so she could get away and uh, not wind up in the hole. And uh, I only mention this comment because, well, I think it's worthy of a fake-ass no-prize. It's been a little while since I've given out a fake-ass no-prize, so, um, Peter, you have a fake-ass no-prize headed your way just as soon as I figure out, um, where to send it. But, uh, thank you so much for writing in. Uh, next up, we're wrapping up with Billy D, who's talking about X-Lapsed episode 264. And before I read that, I want to comment about, uh, that episode overall. Um, now 264 was the X-Men number 3 episode. It was, uh, two episodes ago, clearly. This is 266, so yeah, two episodes ago. And uh, the last, like, 35, 40 minutes of that episode is me kind of going through my, what I called my idiot's guide for podcasting. It was basically my philosophy, my experience with uh, the medium and the art form. And it's funny because in putting out that segment, it kind of proved a lot of the things I said during that segment because a big part of that was not getting bogged down in things like fear, you know, being afraid of putting something out there, uh, which is something that I usually, you know, I fall into that trap where I'm scared to kind of reach out. I'm scared of rejection. I'm scared of just uh, failure overall. And the advice I gave during that segment was to not be, you know, is uh, the very much uh, do as I say, not as I do sort of a uh, Sort of a pep talk there where it's like, don't be afraid to fail Because if you fail, you know, you learn something You you move on And, and failure is a subjective thing anyway And don't be afraid of... Just don't be afraid 
basically, because that's something that I got I get bogged down in way too much. It's really limited me in many ways. Um, you know, self-efficacy, not not thinking I'm good enough, not thinking what I put out is good enough, just being afraid. You know, and it took some convincing of myself to actually include that in the episode or at all. If you listen to episode 263. I mentioned that I was asked the question about, you know, any advice I might have about starting a podcast from a uh, would-be podcast creator. And I mentioned in that episode that, oh, the show's gone a little bit too long, so maybe I'll I'll talk about that next time. And uh, that was me chickening out. (laughs) That was me basically copping out and being like, oh, you know, this episode went a little long, so uh, yeah, let's not do this. And I tell you what, the rest of the day I was really disappointed in myself for not doing it. For letting the fear get the better of me. For letting the fear stop me. So when we got to the next episode, number 264, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And the thing of it is, I mean, this isn't a live program. So I could do it and maybe think about it. And then if I decide to publish it with all that spiel in there, I could do so. Or I could just cut that spiel out. You know, it really wasn't much of a commitment uh, Me just spitting into a microphone For uh, the you know, 30, 40 minutes in that, uh, on that day So I, you know, I kind of hedged my bets I was kind of working with a net But I ultimately came to the conclusion that uh, You know, screw it <laughs> I'm going to do it There's really nothing to be afraid of Which, it's a hard thing to wrap your head around When you're used to just kind of folding You know, and not... Pushing yourself outside of your your comfort zone And I tell you what um, The feedback I received on that segment alone Was uh, nothing short of surprising Um, People were very, very kind uh, about that segment And um, it really, really meant a lot to me To hear that because it, It was validation for myself in that I pushed past fear. I pushed past my comfort zone to do something basically following the main piece of advice I was trying to deliver in that segment. And the feedback I received was just wonderful. Very, very kind. So um, let's get to Billy's message here. He says, hey, Chris, thanks for the conversation about podcasting, mental health, and being genuine. I believe you hit the nail on the head with many different points you made, especially about being passionate and authentic. Anyone thinking about starting a podcast definitely definitely needs to listen to this episode. Thanks as well for being you. There's only one Chris Sheehan, literally, and probably, thankfully. Uh, I added that, not Billy. Billy's way too nice to say something like that. And he says, I should never change. And uh, God bless me for reading all these modern books. So uh, thank you so much, Billy. That, uh, that message really does mean so much to me. It was such a, a delight to wake up to that uh, today. And um, well, yeah, sometimes I trail off with an and um. You, you probably have noticed this if you listen to this show. I, I, I will usually trail off with an and um and then be like, what am I supposed to say after and um? So I will just say thank you. I'd also like to thank uh, Professor Allen, who had some very nice words to say, uh, and Ed Moore as well. I, I was really just pleasantly surprised to, to hear from anybody about it. I really wasn't expecting to hear uh, hear anything on it. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, while we're in the thank yous, let's head into shout-out territory here. This is thanking the folks who've engaged and shared and promoted this little program on the social networks. So on Twitter, I want to thank Professor Allen, Ed Moore, Into the Weird, 21st Century Boys, Chris Bailey, Jesse D. Young, Jeremiah, Dave Schultz, Walt Nealon, Joe Crawford, Billy D., Jody Yarden, X-Men 90s Covers, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Mark Jagger, and Jason Colby. Let's pop over to Facebook. I'd like to thank Jesse DeYoung, Jeremiah, Andrew Franklin, Walt Nealon, Billy D., and Pat Sampson. Thank you all so much. And, uh, hey, let's do some more thank yous. Let's thank the patrons over at patreon.com slash xlapsed. I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, and Mark Jagger. As always, your support and believing in... This goofball who's currently spitting into your ear right now really does mean the world to me. So thank you so, so much. I think that's going to do it for today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, I would love to hear your Inferno thoughts. I I definitely want to hear 
all your theories is, you know, the crazier the better, because I think I probably floated a few crazy ones today myself. So if you'd like to get a hold of me for that or any reason, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You could shoot me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. 90s X-Men is our little group. The complete audio archives can be found at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that can be found pretty much anywhere. Finally, of course, there is the Patreon. Patreon.com slash xlapsed. You can pop over there if you are so inclined. Got a whole bunch of exclusive content over there and a lot of first-run content there as well. Uh, I'm actually just putting the finishing touches on a show that uh, me and Ed Moore are about to launch on the main channel. We're going to give a sneak preview to the uh, the patrons over at patreon.com slash xlapsed, and I hope everyone enjoys it. So I think that is where we'll put a pin in it for today. As always, I would like to thank you all so much for allowing me to reside in your ear for a little while today. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. No more running down the wrong road. Dancing.